You're listening to the 44th Street Podcast, a production of the New York City Bar Association. My name is Tim Peterson, your host and engineer for this program. Just as a note, the opinions expressed here are those of the speaker or speakers and not necessarily those of the New York City Bar Association and are not intended as legal advice. This podcast featuring Dennis Damon, the Chief Privacy Officer of Return Path, was recorded on December 7, 2018 for the Information Technology and Cyber Law Committee of the New York City Bar Association. Our guest is Dennis Damon. Dennis has more than 20 years of experience in spam and cybersecurity and privacy and email issues of all types, ISP relations and uh, all sorts of technical solutions and issues surrounding the internet. Uh, he is currently Return Paths Chief Privacy and Security Officer and in the past has worked for Eloqua, um, Strongmail Systems, and SBC Communications, and the Department of Homeland Security. Dennis, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tim. I'm, I'm glad to be here, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to extract some good information and topics here today. Dennis, you and I first worked together at SBC Communications, where we worked on the uh, SBC Internet Policy Desk. You helped run the policy desk. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about that, please? Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, Internet service providers or mailbox providers, whichever you want to call them, you know, the AT&Ts, the Verizons, the Gmails and whatnot, um, you know, obviously they either sell services or they give services to consumers. And a lot of those consumers obviously are around the digital, you know, use. And, you know, in, in this perspective was Internet access and email. Um, you know, and obviously when somebody's paying you 19.95 for dial-up, and that's – I think I just aged just him a little bit there. But, you know, when we started that, started that business part of it, there was a lot of dial-up, and then DSL kind of came out. But, you know, when people are paying us that kind of money, right, they want a, a, a clean and sort of uninterrupted experience. Um, and that same thing sort of happens, you know, uh, you know, with an e- you know, with an email. And just like today, back then, you know, nobody really wanted to be bothered by spam or irrelevant, you know, emails. Um, nobody wanted to be hacked. Um, you know, people wanted to be protected from law enforcement, you know, intrusion sort of stuff. So what a lot of these, you know, ISPs did is they created these policy desks, and, you know, they were made up of, of folks that, you know, had a technical background maybe to some extent, but also maybe even a little bit of policy or, or law enforcement, you know, you know background. Um, and what that did is it allowed us to create uh, policies and, 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 and ways to, to, again, protect those consumers from those intrusive things. So, you know, as an example, you know, as a, as a consumer of AT&T, if you got spam, you would report it to us and then we would go through and then, you know, if we found that that one individual or whoever that was, you know, were sending spam, uh, we would block them right, and prevent them from being able to get email into the inbox of the of the consumer. If it was that you know uh, malware or other sorts of you know virus situations, um, you know we had you know certain ways to determine if you were infected in virus. Or again, you may not know it, but we would then contact you and say, hey, you know you've got a problem on your computer. You need to get it cleaned up, or we're going to cut you off. So, you know it was a, you know it's it, it still exists today. You know every mailbox provider and, and ISP still has you know, a security or compliance or policy desk, and their one job is to help keep the Internet clean because we all have to sort of do that together and to keep that channel open as much as possible. This goes 
back to the earliest days of the internet. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean there you know there are stories about you know the first policy person being this guy named Afterburner, who um, you know uh, you know you know we was tired of of seeing spam. I know that you know when you and I you know you know came together, uh, we were working with uh, a really good friend of ours, Nick Nicholas, and uh, you know Nick was you know one of the first uh, policy people at uh, Pacific Bell at the time. And I, I remember meeting Nick actually way before I even joined the ISPs. A lot of us were in other areas of the Internet. Um, again, I'm going to probably date us here again, Tim, but, you know, the, the news groups, right, uh, the news groups was a way to, to sort of communicate with people, uh, you know, on topics. And there was a lot of people that would then come in and abuse those groups by posting, you know, opportunities to buy crap and, and, and to be disruptive. And I remember being in some of these groups, one of them called, you know, Nane, which was uh, about, you know, uh, you know, abuse and whatnot. And a lot of us who today are still sort of doing this work, you know, would go into this group and talk about where the most recent uh, abuse or spam issue was occurring. And it was actually a way for us to sort of share information between different mailbox providers or ISPs. So I met Nick there, you know, in the early days of, of that, or even sort of working in bulletin board systems. Um, and that, that community sort of worked together. So, yeah, it's uh, – it, it went back much, much more further than sort of those ISP days. So your career is basically, in, in, a, in, a, in a strong sense, uh, uh, centered on spam, yeah. based on spam, say. Would, uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, a little bit. It's funny. Everyone, even in the early days, you know, always called us like the net cops, the internet cops and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, it, you know, I myself, like I said earlier, that I was in the, in the news groups. I used to run my own bulletin board system. In fact, I remember, you know, as I'm getting ready to go to college, I had a Packard Bell 486SX computer, and I had two modems, and, you know, I remember, you know, upgrading to 56K, but I ran a bulletin board on it, and it was a way for my friends to dial in. Um, they could, you know, leave notes and topics and pictures and other things, and occasionally, you know, again, somebody would, you know, get on that system and, and, and create havoc. and. Um, yeah, it, it basically was spam, and spam isn't just email. Spam is, is, is everything. You know, we talk about spam voicemails and spam text and, you know, spam emails. So spam really describes a whole lot of different abuses of different channels that are out there. And this goes through your – this is a thread that runs through your career, say, like from from SBC to MAPS, Mail Abuse Prevention Systems, uh, through Verizon, through Strongmail. Um what do you see as uh, maybe the the next generation of spam? Um, like, what do you see in the future of the, uh, for the future of marketers looking to uh, maybe push the envelope when it comes to uh, uh, marketing communications? Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I mean, you know, the internet's growing so fast, and and it's it's getting a little bit harder now. Um, you know, because back in the day, like when you and I were sort of doing this work. You know, when, when, when companies would create new ideas, channels, communication channels, right, there was a, a very specific way that you should go do it, and a part of that was through standards, right? You, would, you might talk to the, uh, what was called the IETF or the Internet Engineering Task Force, um, and you would get sort of, you know, the Internet's approval because it was much more smaller back then in terms of creating, you know, these new communication channels. But in today's environment, as you know, uh, you know, technology moves at an enormous pace. In, in fact, you and I, sort of do, dealing with the legislative work and the policy work, know that today uh, laws, state, federal, country, do not at all keep up with the pace of technology. Um, and a lot of that's just because of the startup environment that we work in. So, um, you know, the Internet being as big as it is, you obviously can't get permission from everybody or at least feedback from everybody when you're creating a new channel. 
and you look at social media, right? That was a very good example where, you know, um, um, you know, the, you know, the idea of just sort of talking, you know, you know, with friends through um, FaceTime, not FaceTime, sorry, through Facebook and other things, you know, that was sort of the first sort of big thing. And then Snapchat and Instagram and Vine and I mean, all these new platforms came out of nowhere because everybody had the ability to develop on their own. Um, because the internet grew and cloud technologies were now placed out there to help you develop new ideas and technologies, you know, it, it makes it really hard to sort of know where um, where the next issue could be. I'll give you an example, though, of, of one that's still it's sort of new, but it, it, it's been kind of out there, and you know, is it, something called calendar spam. And what we're now finding is that a lot of these email uh, protocols, or sorry, these email clients or, or calendaring applications that we have on our phones and our laptops. They're getting very smart now. I, I, I don't remember, you know, Tim, if you have an Apple uh, laptop like I do, but you know, my laptop, it starts to scan my email, and when it finds someone's phone number, it goes, "Hey, do you want to add them to your contacts, or do you want to update the contact?" Because I've never seen this phone number from this individual. It does the same thing for calendars. If it finds a calendar attachment or a date within an email, it'll basically prompt you, "Hey, do you want to save this for a future?" And what we're seeing is spammers are now using email by putting in spam messages with a, with a certain date and time, usually repeating, or an actual calendar attachment in there. And if your computer is set up to automatically you know, accept that, that calendar, next thing you know, you're getting a reminder every day or every week to buy some weird product. And you're like, wait, where's this coming from? And it was something that, well, the, 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 the hackers, spackers, spammers, what do you want to call them, that they sort of figured out. Um, you know, so it was just something we had never considered that somebody could find a way to abuse our calendar. So is it is it a virus or a Trojan within the calendar script, or is it just a way of uh, implanting uh, information onto your calendar that is more or less innocuous, but you know can influence you to do certain things? Yeah, it's, it's probably more the latter. Yeah, it's not really a, a malicious program, you know, by any means, but it's just you know. You know, these devices now that we have, right, they're, we buy them to simplify our lives, right, to, to you know, shorten our days and whatnot. And then as the, you know, devices, you know, we, we you know, these, these companies, these great software packages to then make our lives even easier, well, the, you know, the hackers have sort of figured that out and said, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take advantage of that and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to become a bother to them to some extent and hopefully they'll buy my product. Um, you know, so yeah, it's, it's not really anything innocuous. It's just, it's just it's, sorry, it's nothing like, like, like viruses or malware, but it's just, you know, it's just part of our normal, you know, technology uses that are being abused. I'm a, I'm a, a big sports fan and one of the uh, trends in sports, and this goes through all sports, is uh, the increasing use of analytics where people sit down and figure out in very sophisticated ways uh, exactly how valuable a football player or a baseball player or a basketball player is uh, based on things that are not you know, always apparent. And it has yielded a lot of surprising results, and, have, and, and the analytics have changed all those sports to a certain extent. Um, do these kind of marketing efforts, uh, are they – performed by very sophisticated parties or are they you know script kiddies who are just trying out some stuff for fun and are just trying to sell you know uh, pottery or something like that um you know it's a little bit of both i mean you know analytics has always been a part of the internet for as long as i can recall i mean 
you know, uh, I'll use a very simplistic sort of, you know, mechanism, and that's cookies, right? You know, cookies have been around since you and I had started working together, you know, back in the late 90s. Um, you know, uh, you know, cookies were used for analytics, and they're used by very good companies out there, and, and there's tons of them you know, still doing that. Um, you know, uh, but you know, these these you know nefarious sort of individuals have also figured out ways to uh, to, to use those analytic technologies to understand what you're doing. Maybe if you're opening an email, and I'll give you a, another example that you and I are very familiar with. That in the early days of email, we would tell people when you got spam, don't click the links, right? Because if you click the links or if you click on subscribe, you were validating or verifying that this was a good email address. And yes, the spammers back then were using their own version of analytics within that unsubscribe URL to go, oh, yep, someone clicked there, it's a good one, so I'll just keep it in my spam database. Um, and that's, you know, and, and that was, uh, you know, our way of sort of helping, you know, consumers deal with it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they'll do those sorts of things. I have seen where spammers will, um, they will, what we call clickjack, you know, other other tracking technologies that are out there, uh, well-known tracking technologies, and, and they'll basically place themselves into the middle of that tracking technology to, you know, also get a copy of the information. And they usually do that on websites and whatnot, but, you know, they, they even drop cookies and other weird things, malware being another one of those things on your computer, and maybe that malware is not there to do any damage but it's to maybe garner more data about you and to steal data, you know, uh, you know, from you, including your email address. So, yeah, I mean, they use those sorts of things. I mean, um, they're not really doing anything different. I mean, I find it kind of interesting that they sort of piggyback on the legitimate use of these technologies because, they're, I mean, the legitimate use is, 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 is a very smart way of, of, of doing these sorts of things, and, and they realize it. And it also means that they don't have to go out and deploy their own, you know, sort of ideas. They can just sort of see what's coming around and go, yep, you know what, I'm just going to do the same thing. And I'll just use it for my own purposes. So it's not like email is, say, passe per se, but that um, this is just an evolution of what had been, you know, a very relatively mundane technology, email. And now it's become much more sophisticated with all sorts of uh, trapping up, tracking applications um, you know, through advertisements and, and links and, and, and other means uh, through cookies and whatnot. Um, so would you agree with that? Yeah, I would, actually, because as I, as I sort of think about the early days of this for us, you probably remember the, uh, the browser bar situations where, you know, at one point or another, and I know that I, I think I recall that, you know, even at one point, you know, SBC had launched one of these little browser bars that would allow you to, you know, log in and you could see your weather. And it would just be a little bar, you know, which now today we use as the bookmark bar or uh, I think it even comes off as a, as a uh, what they call like a page bar. But like right now under my URL, you know, where I submit the URLs, I've got little buttons that I can push, right, to get to Facebook or to Google and, and, and other things. Um, but I remember that, you know, you could also use it as a search bar, right? It was a browser bar. And then many companies like Yahoo were, you know, allowing you to add Yahoo to, you know, Safari, which was not their, which, which was not their browser, but you could still use Yahoo and you can search through that. And I recall that we would see these malicious browser bars get installed by just simply visiting a website. 
And by putting that browser bar, then they stuck themselves right in the middle of your keyboard, if you will, in the Internet and watched everything that you would search for and everything that you would click on. And, and to be honest, if you would search for a specific website, they could also intercept that result coming back to you and send you to a preferential site of their own. And usually that site, either they owned or they got paid for because you wouldn't click on it, then they were getting paid cash just for that simple sort of thing. I remember talking to the general counsel of one of those kinds of companies in uh, Silicon Valley. And right when the dot-com boom was going bust in, uh, in 2000, 2001, and his company – uh, paid users per click, and they were undone by some uh, very clever people who wrote a script to uh, basically just keep clicking um, and, and on the on the bar that they installed, and so uh, it basically bled the company dry, and they could not get that particular business model going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's just like I said, it's just uh, they they latch on to the most, you know. Uh, monetarily, you know, uh, thing that they can find, you know, but that's what they're doing. They're making money. So however they can do it, they'll figure it out. Let's uh, switch focus for a little bit. Um, there are two regions that are basically driving uh, privacy policy today, in, in, in my estimation. One, one would be Europe and the other would be California. Uh, let's, uh, let's look at Europe first. Um, could you tell me a little bit about uh, your experience with uh, GDPR and and what you do in your in your day to day job and how you uh, work with GDPR? Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's a really good question because you know privacy or GDPR is is nothing new to the European region, right? I mean, if you if you know for those who sort of keep up with this, right? We've you know, Europe, especially their own countries in general, I mean, I'll use the U.K. as an example. They've had their own privacy rules on the book uh, since 73, 74, right? And then as the European uh, Union came together, the European economic, you know, uh, you know area sort of kind of came together and created the union, which is now 28 members. And if Brexit happens, it may be 27. I doubt Brexit's going to happen now. But um, but they've always had their own sort of, you know, uh, you know privacy laws, uh, you know, that have been there. Um, and, um, you know, that first sort of thing that was there, you know, was the directive or what we would mm-hmm. call it the, the 95 directive, right? And that's sort of where GDPR began, right? So you have to go all the way back to 95, and the directive, you know, was, was there to regulate the processing, and if you could see my fingers in quotes, of personal data in a fair and lawful manner, right? And fair basically meaning that you must tell data subjects, and I hate that term, but subjects that, you know, what you're doing with their personal data and then the lawful reasons uh, that you must have it and sort of how they can comply and, and, and vice versa. Um, but, you know, like many other sort of laws and regulations, um, and like I said earlier, technology moves at a fast pace, and so there needs to be sort of an update. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, that was GDPR, right? And so in, in January of what, 2012, the European Commission set out their plans for the state of protection reform um, to make Europe, if you will, fit for the digital age. And basically almost four years later, that agreement was sort of reached, and, and, and now it's what's sort of involved. Um, you know, again, you know, the, you know, GDPR takes it, you know, much, much more further, and I could sit here for hours and talk about GDPR, and you probably mm-hmm. read all the different articles that are associated with it. Um, but really, you know, the digital future of the Internet in general can only really sort of be built on trust and, you know, some sort of common standards for data protection so that people understand that they are in control of their, of their personal information. 
And really, that's that's really where GDPR comes in. It's a, a set of rules designated to give those citizens in the EU more control over their information. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, GDPR does a lot of different things. It talks about data breaches, and you know, we know that data breaches happen. But you know, if it does happen, then if you have had that breach, then you have a you have to tell the individuals and the data protection authority that you've had a breach and, and what was stolen, so that maybe they might be able to take advantage of, of data protection technologies and processes and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, GDPR is just another sort of realm of, of moving forward. And, you know, Tim, it's funny, as GDPR was coming around, I remember hearing from a lot of marketers, they were kind of going, oh, my God, there's new privacy rules coming, and, you know, what are we going to do? And I would turn to them and go, listen, if you've been doing business in the European Union prior to GDPR actually coming about, then you had to uh, have had to adhere to the directive itself. So you have at least a, a base knowledge or a base process of protecting and, 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 and giving those rights of access to the data subjects themselves. So there really shouldn't be sort of any major, you know, changes for you happening. But, you know, it seemed to be that it sort of still took people by surprise. The other aspect of it, I think, is that, you know, it is much larger. I mean, GDPR is so much more detailed. Um, it does have some broad definitions into it, but, you know, um, it, it does scare the marketers a little bit because they don't know whether or not that they can email. Um, and what happened, actually, coming – so May 25th of this year is when it came into enforcement. I know the days before, I was – you probably had the same thing. I was getting tons of re-opt-in emails for email, and it's like, wait a minute. Um, one, I, either I don't remember your brand, or I did. In fact, I remember getting an email from Garmin when I used to have a Garmin GPS unit in my car. Don't have one anymore because I have an iPhone. But you know, I forgot that Garmin still had my email address. Uh -huh. Gave me an opportunity to actually unsubscribe, thankfully, and delete my profile. But you know, if you look at GDPR, GDPR never said that you had to go re-opt in everybody. You just had to have one, you know, reason. You know, like one of the basis is one of the lawful reasonings for processing that data. Um, and if you had lawful reasoning, uh, you know, which would be, hey, we need to send information to an existing customer, then you didn't need to sort of go in and re-opt them in. So, um, yeah, so GDPR, it just, it, it sort of moved things forward. And um, I think it was probably one of the smarter things for Europe to do. It set some new standards across the world where we're starting to see other countries are now following suit. Um, and uh, it's been it's been interesting, um, to, to, especially to prepare for. But it's been it, it's been it's been a long road. One of the criticisms of uh, GDPR is that uh, it may favor multinationals over small businesses or startups because the multinationals have had more practice in adhering to uh, maybe not set privacy standards, but industry standards. Say, uh, do you th do you feel that this is a valid criticism of GDPR? You know, I do, Tim. Actually, you know, as you know, I, I work quite a bit in the startup community, um, you know, both as an investor and partner in some different firms, um, especially here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you know, helping companies build their, you know, their standards out. And you know, I, I, I never saw it coming, but, you know, it, uh, it, it sort of fell into my lap, as they say, where as I talk to these companies about these new products and services, mobile apps, whatever it is that they're developing, um, I'm happy to help them, you know, build something new and, and cool, but then I have to then sort of help them take a step back, and I have to go, all right, let's let's talk about, you know, you know, the, the privacy policy that you're going to need for this. And they're going, well, wait a minute, why do I need that? Or I have a privacy policy for my website, and it's like, well, that's for marketing. Let's look at a privacy policy for the application itself. Or, you know, hey, you're 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 collecting information from those in the European Union, and yet you're storing that information here in the U.S. 
what mechanism or what, you know, what process did you choose to be able to legally and lawfully move that information from the EU and process it and store it here in the U.S.? Because under GDPR and as also under the EU directive, um, you know, you're not allowed to just process and store information in, in, the, in uh, countries with inadequate privacy rules, and the U.S. is one of those. So, uh, you know, a lot of them are kind of flipping out about it because it was something that they hadn't considered, they hadn't built the controls in. They don't know how to build privacy policies. A lot of these guys are, are tech guys, mm-hmm. and, and they're just building something really cool and neat. Um, and, you know, we all know that the legal aspect of running, you know, or, of your business is, is, is very expensive. I mean, no offense to you, Tim, but, you know, we all know that lawyers are expensive, and, you know, and it's just part of, the, part of what, we, what has to happen. But startups don't have an infinite amount of money always, especially if they're not funded by some of the larger funds that are out there, if they're not the Googles or the Facebooks and whatnot. Um, so it, it it definitely can be unfair, and it's interesting because I do I, I do get into arguments with my friends about this. But you know, I look at some places within Europe, and you know, I I don't see as many funds. I don't see as many startups that are you know in that arena out there, just because well, they feel like they kind of get strangled a little bit more when it comes to being innovative, and they tend to come to countries like ours where. Not that they can be more abusive, but they can be more innovative. And you know, Silicon Valley is a very good example of that. Mm-hmm places like that and they can you know you know be more innovative in that in that realm so um you know it's just uh yeah it it it, it can be unfair from time to time do you feel that the first actor in the regulatory sphere so europe is not quite the first actor overall, but certainly in terms of being proactive concerning the latest technologies g d p r is cutting edge uh, do you feel that the first actor in, in terms of a regulatory body, uh, sets the standard for the world? Uh, it, yeah, you know what, it does happen that way. I mean, I've, I, I have a little bit of a soft spot, a soft spot uh, for Europe just because, you know, the way that it currently works, and, and the same thing happens even in the U.K., right? Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to move fast when it comes to, to the regulatory efforts. Um, I don't feel as if there is as much red tape. Um, it's not that they're not concerned about the monetary loss or the economic loss. I mean, they definitely are, but that's usually a little bit sort of on the low end, where here in the U.S., it, it's really more about success and money. Um, and so, you know, also, and if you, you and I were really experienced in this, but, you know, the lobbying sort of process that's here in the U.S., there's a lot of ways to block things from happening uh, by lobbying, by money, and you know, and, and sort of that process there. So... You know, when Europe makes changes, um, they do it very quickly. They do it their way. Uh, sure, they listen to a, lot, to, to a lot of us. I mean, I remember back in, you know, 2010, 2011, going to the Institute of Peace in D.C. and sitting down with a bunch of other stakeholders and literally having one of the largest conference calls I've ever had with the folks in, uh, in Brussels, uh, where Parliament is, and sort of discussing the future of European law or just law in general, and us at the one time trying to figure out, can we have global privacy regulations put together? And, you know, we never really could come to terms on that. So Europe sort of did their own thing. And now what you're seeing is Brazil has recently launched their own. Um, you know, Asia PAC is doing the same thing. And what we're also now seeing, I, I said earlier, within GDPR and within the EU directive, there's this term about adequacy and that you can move data to countries with adequate privacy and security protections. And Canada is, you know, one of those, right? They have PIPEDA. So you can move data pretty easily from, from the Europe uh, region to Canada. And so what you end up seeing is that other countries follow these rules. They're good rules. Uh, they make their own. Sometimes they're basically almost copying word for word the rules. 
And then because they do that, it opens up that adequacy pathway between the countries to be able to work together to move data and for companies to, to build between the two, thus eventually helping their, their economic you know, regions as well. So, yeah, I, I find that people tend to listen to them quite a bit. So uh, Brazil and uh, APAC are coming up with their own uh, privacy policies. Uh, how do those policies differ from GDPR? So, um, yeah, so in, in August of this year, right, um, uh, President uh, Timmer, who's the you know, Brazilian president, signed into law their, their general data privacy law. Uh, I think they call it LGPD, which is sort of the English translation, I guess, of it. Um, and so, you know, the key provisions sort of mirror GDPR, including, you know, uh, vast fines where under GDPR you can be fined anywhere between 2 to 4% of your global uh, t- revenue. You know, with, with Brazil it's the same sort of thing. They went 2%. Uh, they have things around uh, scope, right? So the Brazilian law, uh, you know, has broad applicability, uh, you know, not just in Brazil but also outside of Brazil, and so does GDPR. Uh, and what I mean by that is a lot of U.S. companies go, oh, I, I'm not headquartered in, in Europe, so I don't have to worry about the law. But if you are collecting data from a European citizen, then it does apply to you, right? Uh, things like lawful basis for processing, right? L, uh, LGPD recognizes lawful basis for processing, uh, consent, contractual necessities, you know, stuff like that. Um, so there are quite a bit of, of sort of similarities between the two. Um, and like I said, that, that sort of helps out because, again, if you're doing very similar protections um, that, are, that, are near, or that are near or above and beyond what the other country is doing, then it makes it you know, much better. So, yeah, it, um, yeah they're, 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 they're doing it very similar. Are, are, do you feel that they, they copy from each other? Are there cultural differences? Are there regional differences worth noting? Or are, are basically all these countries trying to figure out you know, maybe something that would become a standard uh, across the world? Um, you know, there are cultural differences. I mean, we all use technology in, in different ways. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Like in certain you know, countries mm-hmm. within Africa, right, um, you tend to do more of your day-to-day communications and business just on a simple mobile phone. Uh, one of the more prevalent ones is banking. I mean, people trade, uh, they pay each other over their mobile phones so much uh, quicker. I mean, that's mostly because in a lot of regions, right, there isn't a lot of cities, there isn't a lot of infrastructure. You don't really just have a bank, you know, sitting on the middle of, of, of nowhere in Africa, but when you got to pay for food and other things, you have to have a way of doing that. And so mobile phones have been a very prevalent use of that over there. So... Um, they tend to be on their phones more, so they tend to use more mobile applications and stuff. It's not to say they don't use email and, and things, but they really rely on applications. So when you look at the use of mobile phones and tracking, you know, GPS and that stuff, right, you'll start to get – you'll start to see that there's more information collected around that use, whereas in other countries it might be more – less on mobile at times where you're not banking all the time on mobile devices but more, but more on laptops. So there can be cultural differences that, that, that do sort of set the tone as to, you know, what technology that you might have to use based on where you live. Okay. Now, this all circles back to um, the one state in the union that tends to drive all our technology policy, and that's California. Yeah. Could you tell me uh, a little bit about uh, uh, the CCPA and what that is and, uh, and what it does to uh, uh, enhance privacy for the consumer? Right. So California, so the CCPA is called the California Consumer Protection Act, right, or CCPA. 
Um, it's an interesting one because um, it, uh, you know, I mean, we all know that protecting privacy is important. And if you, you and I recall, you know, California even had its own anti-spam law, you know, prior to can spam, which is the federal law, you know, coming into play. They've always been sort of a leader in, the, in, in that area. Um, you know, so again, you know, privacy is, 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 is really good. But, you know, for California, unfortunately, um, it's a very good attempt at, at doing something here. But um, without getting into all the necessary sort of details as to why, it, why the way it happened, but, you know, California did rush through a, a massive bill in about seven days uh, to sort of, you know, put privacy protection, you know, into play. The problems with CCPA, unfortunately, is it takes an insanely broad view of what personal information is covered. And I'll give you a couple of examples of PII, but they go through name, alias, postal, unique identifiers, IP addresses, email accounts, social security numbers, you know, things that, that we typically know as identifiers, uh, biometric prints and whatnot. But then it also gets into things that may not always be, uh, you know, you know, PII in, in, in some areas, but they also start talking about audio, visual, thermal uh, sort of things. Um, it gets really, really weird as they sort of go, you know, through this. And, you know, I think what they were trying to do, I mean, they even talk about intelligence abilities as, as a part of PII. Um, but I think what they were attempting to do was sort of future-proof a little bit of head, you know, you know for this. But... The problem with that sort of, you know, and again, you can read the, the, the definitions and it goes on and on and on. The problem with that definition is it's not always about the individual. If you take a look at my home here, I've got four laptops, four phones, and I can't tell you how many other devices, probably about 30 other devices that connect to the Internet that mm -hmm. either my teenage sons use or my wife might use in a sharing ability. That includes the TVs as well. So now you're starting to look at not just associated with an individual, but also sort of a household. So, you know, if as a marketer, if you're marketing, this, you know, to a certain individual, then who is actually doing the clicking and then submissions? And, you know, is it about that household versus in just that sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, person? Um, so there's 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 a lot of issues around that that I think sort of, you know, is a you know is a concern to a lot of us. Um, because it really throws everybody under the bus at that point um, and means that you've got a lot more to protect. The other aspect of it is, is then, you know, who, who or what household, you know, do you have to be in California? Can you be visiting California? Because like with GDPR, it applies to me even as a visitor in the United Kingdom or in, you know, I was in Brussels last week. While I was there, mm -hmm. you know, my laptop, every time I would log into the hotel Internet, I'd have to go through like 15 permission pages and, and, and submit to like five of their cookies, some of them being functional and some of them not, um, which is a pain in the rear. But that also means at that point I'm now protected by any data that might be collected while I'm sitting in that hotel. It would fall under sort of GDPR. And that same thing happens within California is, you know, as you're, as you're going through California as a visitor, then, you know, how do you know if you are dealing with that, you know, person in general? So it's, you know, it's sort of a real, you know, weird regulation. Uh, there's a lot of misspellings. Um, there's a lot of uh, places in the law where it says one thing and then it trumps itself another part of the law. Uh, it just, it, it was just poorly and, and too quickly written. And while we don't think we're going to be able to obviously kill it or change it, uh, well, not change it, but, but kill it, what we are trying to do is to sort of now get with, um, you know, those that are in charge of it, in this case the Attorney General, who also, by the way, was completely taken by surprise by this, who has, you know, been told that he has to do X, Y, or she here, she has to do X, Y, and Z now, and they're kind of going, wait a minute, now all of a sudden I'm now in charge of this. I don't even have the budget, nor, you know, much less the staff, and they have to go and define a lot of these sorts of things. So 
you know, again, it was just sort of put out there, and, and there was just a lot of sort of multiple writers that, that were spending their time and narratives on this whole thing, and, you know, it's, um, it, it's kind of a problem right now. Um, we're hoping to see, you know, come the first part of next year, we'll, we'll get some clarifications. We'll be able to make some changes. We'll be able to, to maybe pare down the, net, you know, the definitions themselves if we can, but, you know, it's, um, it's, a, it, it's an interesting one for us. Now, could California's law um, theoretically or practically uh, gum up the works and, and, and cause a, a slowdown in e-commerce activity because people are so afraid of crossing California's uh, very strict rules that they, uh, that they choose not to um, you know, run afoul of that? Obviously, if California is making something... Uh, or prescribing something would it would uh, make any kind of uh, move in that arena very risky, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, because we saw that same thing with GDPR. Um, we saw mm-hmm. companies decided to close shop all of a sudden, either you know across the board because they were in the EU, or we've seen companies now that will not market to people in the EU. In fact, when I'm in the EU, if I try to visit my local ABC affiliate. Uh, web page here, right? My, my news page here in the in, in Dallas, I get blocked. It don't, won't allow me to go there. I have to VPN back to the states to be able to look at news locally here because they don't want to collect that information. Um, and we've seen that same thing happen within CCPA. There is concern for people saying, okay, now the new question I have to ask is on my sign-up forms: Are you in California? Because the rules are going to be different than if you were to sign up for email while you're in Texas or in Louisiana. There's a different standard. Now, <clears throat> I will tell you, though, that sort of my idea across the board is, you know, uh, taking something like GDPR and applying it across the board, your entire marketing program, regardless of where the person is, is a really smart bet these days. But, um, you know, again, California gets into much, much more detail and requires so much more, especially when it comes to the definition of PII, that, yes, some companies are potentially, you know, considering not even wanting to market right now until they sort of figure out where this regulation is going to go. You know, we still have some time to work on it, but it is scaring some people moving forward. Okay. Um, a few years ago, uh, Steve Jobs, among other people, suggested that or explicitly stated that privacy is dead. <laughs> so now we're at the close of 2018. Do, do you think privacy is dead? I mean, wh- where do we go from here? Are, are, is, is the horse out of the barn and away and we can't get it back? Or is there some measure of privacy that we can uh, still secure for ourselves? Or is just do we have unrealistic expectations on how much privacy we should have? Yeah, you know, I... Uh... I kind of go back and forth on the idea of whether privacy is, you know, is dead or not, right? I mean, you know, in order to control privacy, you know, the first thing we have to do is sort of control the keys through the privacy, which is our PII, right? And in reality, you know, now that my sons are about to, you know, turn, you know, to college here pretty soon, you know, my wife and I have been sort of, you know, uh, working to educate them on what PII risks there are, you know. So as an example, you know, I, I tell them, you know, a lot of websites you'll go to will ask you to either put an email address in or a phone number in as an identifier. And I still kind of feel that my phone number is very private to me. I mean, not many people actually have my direct number on my mobile phone, but I have a Google number that I sometimes give out to people that I may not know just as much because it's more intrusive to me when my phone rings, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, same thing with social security numbers and other things as well. 
Um, but I think it really sort of starts with education and sort of explaining to kids that, you know, this is what PII is. And, and the less that you are, sorry, the, the less that you just kind of throw out there and, and the more that you protect it, the better at, you know, that you'll have a control over it. The unfortunate fact, unfortunately, is un for my sons, you know, in the anthem breach that happened, we were all taken. Our social security numbers were taken. So at that point, you know, it, it doesn't matter to, to you know to, to that point because we have to worry about those situations. But um, sure. yeah, privacy is not dead. It's just different, I think, you know, because of all the technologies that we choose to interact with. I mean, you could become a hermit crab if you want. You can go live under a bridge all day long, but that doesn't seem very fun, I, 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 I would assume. Um, we just have to think a little bit differently about sort of how we interact with these things. And I think also then companies have to be a little bit responsible for this. You know, GDPR and other regulations talk about, you know, uh, you know, do you have to have all this information? Like if someone's signing up for an email address, oh, sorry, for an email newsletter, you know, sure, take their name and their email address so you can send that to the right place and then give a great salutation to it. But do you need to be, you know, collecting Social Security number for that? No, you don't, right? There's not a reason for that. So I think a part of that also is, is sort of put on those data stewards, if you will, that I like to use the term, that they should need to sort of understand mm -hmm. that. So, um, you know, is it dead? Uh, no, um, not dead in the sense of, like, you know, if you're willing to sort of control, you know, what's going to bother you or how it's going to be used um, from the perspective of, like I said, security. I mean, yeah, sure, I mean, it, it, it's going to be out there, but... You know, privacy is just really a digital footprint of what our lives are. And if you want to be on Facebook, you can be on Facebook, but you also don't have to be on Facebook, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, you, um, uh, do you have any kind of sense of what technologies are out there that might impact what we consider to be privacy concerns in the future? Like, what are we going to be talking about in five years? What kind of legislation will be will be trying to uh, to uh, write in five years? Maybe California jumped the gun a little bit, and were they correct in doing so? Well, you know, again, you know, the U.S. Has, has always been very sort of slow to this. Again, like I said earlier, and that they also kind of do things a little bit differently here. Um, you know, I think the landscape will be different. I mean, even just this past week, I I can't. I, can't even remember just how many breaches alone were announced over this past week on top of Marriott. Um, you know, Quorum was another one that, that, that came out, which is another, you know, system. But everything has been breached, right? So now what we're seeing typically is now everybody wants to sort of now run with privacy you know, regulations and they want to put something in place. And I remember, like, when you and I started working, uh, almost every year up, up until now there's always been legislation being introduced around privacy, right, um, you know, here in the U.S., um, and it's just the way that's going to be. I think what California does to some extent is does scare us a little bit. You know, what I don't want happening is I don't need 50-some-odd states having their own different regulations, you know. We kind of have that a little bit right now in healthcare, where, you know, healthcare data can be treated a little bit different and, and how you get permission and how you have to secure it state by state, um, but it makes it much more difficult for us to do business, especially because the Internet doesn't understand state or federal bounds. So, you know, how, how many more questions do we have to ask of the individual before we can get down to business, right? And I think that also sort of loses the, the effectiveness of the Internet, right? It's, you know, if you have to ask, like I said earlier, about, you know, 15 you know, permissions to get cookies for you to get on the Internet in Europe, that's not very fun, and I'm not likely to then want to jump on there. So I think I think California does raise that bar a little bit. It does have other states that are now considering. There's been a couple of other states that have said, "Ooh, we're gonna we want to go down that route as well and see what we can do." 
And then you have the federal side now wanting their piece of the pie, and that's all we've been hearing about. I mean, just even next week, you know, this is, you know, public information, but the uh, the Judiciary Committee is going to be looking and talking to Google. Uh, Facebook last week was in Parliament. Um, the regu- sorry, the, uh, the lawmakers are now asking questions of these companies to understand sort of what they're doing with the data. Um, and what, what, what will be interesting, though, I think for California is they're already asking for, the governor's already said, there shouldn't be overriding you know, privacy uh, legislation on the federal side, preemption, right? You know, can't spam preempts other state laws in terms of email. They don't want that to happen in California. And a lot of us, if we had to have privacy legislation on the federal side, would want preemption because that would only give us one law to have to worry about at that one point. It's still sure. still yet to be determined. You know, everyone has a, has an opinion and a stakeholder in this. And you know, if you just watch, you know, as soon as Congress comes back, um, we'll see what happens. I'm kind of wondering now what's going to happen now that we have a a different house now. But you know, it's um, you know, I'm not sure if that's going to be on their top of their uh, their, their list of things to do right now. I, I'm hoping mm-hmm. it can be because I wouldn't mind us having more discussions about that. But you know, it's just uh, it's just it's just the world that we live in here in the U.S. Is is it a correct read of the situation that uh, Democrats tend to um, promote these kind of laws or are more proactive in pushing forward privacy laws than Republicans, or is it more sophisticated than that? Uh, you know, I, again, I, I sort of kind of go back and forth on that one. I do hear the Democratic Party tends to push that more often. They want to protect the consumers and whatnot, but. You know, I think I think everybody wants to do it. I think right now what we're hearing is just a lot of finger pointing right now because people are upset at some of the changes that have just recently happened in the in the races and whatnot. But I think all in all, we all want to be protected. You know, it's just the way that um, you know. I I ask when I'm on the hill and I'm talking to different members. You know, one of the things I do get down to is you know, do you have kids and sort of you know, do you worry about you know you know what's going to happen with their information. 99% of the times I get a real true answer from them. It's like, yeah, we do worry about what's going to happen with their information. I've always worried about what's going to happen with my son's information, and I've always known that there was going to be a breach even before they turned 18 where their social security number was going to already end up on the dark web, and it is. So, um, <laughs> but I think everybody really, truly in their own heart, they, they do want some control, but we have to do it in a way where we're also not stifling innovation. I, you know, I've talked to, to several friends about sort of you know, a couple of years ago, the data, sorry, the, the, yeah, the Data Marketing Association had done something on something called the, the, uh, the data-driven economy and showed that, you know, innovation is important to, to our economy because our economy does run on innovation. I mean, we look at it every day in our own homes, the amount of devices that we have, the, 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 the Alexas and the, and, the, and the iPhones and the laptops and whatnot. You know, we pay big money. It goes into these companies. It goes into the economy. It is what drives us. But you know, it's uh, it, without you know without privacy re- regulations, we are kind of in a bad spot. With it, we could be in a better spot if we do it the wrong way. We could be hurting. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, it sounds like uh, that the concern for there's there's a concern out there for parents, but you know, touching upon what you said earlier, would Education for both kids and adults be something that you would recommend, or maybe even sh- it should be mandatory in schools. Yeah, you know what? And it, it, you're right; it should be. And I'm starting to see that a little bit these days. Um, um, you know, around here, um, 
I've for the longest time have been sort of teaching classes around here um, within with with not within the district itself, but within little clubs and stuff like that. Um, you know, here in Texas, um, you know, there's something called you know the four H's, and that's you know it's a U.S. based network of you know or, or you know of organizations where you know people can sort of or the youth can sort of help develop themselves. And you know, we've gone in and sort of talked to those parents. I've shown them powerpoints about how. Um, how technology is used, how social media is used, how leak speak is done, um, the things that, that, that kids can accidentally get involved in without knowing it. And, um, you know, and, and it still surprises and shocks me that parents don't know that there are privacy and security issues. I think they think that by having a computer inside their home behind a modem that everything's going to be hunky-dory and that no one's ever going to get in and, and do anything nefarious to them. But the other thing, too, that I'm a big preacher on, and uh, you know, is is involvement in your children's online activities. I mean, again, with my sons, um, and you've seen this sort of discussion, you've you watched them grow up on Facebook with me. You know, I, I, I've been very sort of um, interactive with them, and, and, and the best example that I can give right now would be the social media use. I remember that they, that they asked for Facebook, right? And it's like, oh, okay, now we're here. And it's funny because I always thought, hey, I want a mobile phone was going to be the big discussion, but social media was the scary one for me, and I kind of went, all right, well, let's sit down and let me talk to you about what social media is all about and how you, how people use it, how people shouldn't be using it, and how you definitely should not be using it. Um, and the same thing happened with Instagram and with Snapchat and all these other things. And, you know, Jennifer and I had to sit down and sort of work with them on understanding the responsibility of being put online and having access to these devices because there are things that you could do, again, without knowing it that could put you in danger. I mean, even now as they're getting ready to go off to colleges, well, colleges are, are, are looking at their social usages. They want to make sure that they're not doing anything dumb. Um, and that's a part of, uh, of sort of that, that, that mindset that I've had to put them in is that, you know, you've got to behave not just in front of everybody but even online. So, you know, when we did social media, we sat down, and uh, this sounds very draconian and very boring, but, you know, we had them look at a policy, right, and it basically was like, you know, <laughs> 10 things that you need to know about the use of social media. And it was like, you know, before taking a picture of somebody and posting it online, you know, get their permission, you know, don't take inappropriate photos and post them online, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, sure. You know, not to say that they haven't done anything dumb, they have, and I, you know, I, I monitor the Facebook side of things, the wife of mine, you know, she, she does Instagram, and so she monitors that side, and we see something that they might have liked or reposted that we think is a little bit out there, we're like, yeah, hey, let's talk about this for a second. So I, I think parents have to put down their own devices. I I, I hate to find parents at dinner and, and other places where their faces are buried in their own phones and they're not just simply taking time to even speak to their own children about their own days, much, you know, also about sort of what's going on out there in the, in the real world and, and, and what they have to worry about. Because it's not just, hey, be careful driving now. It's, hey, be careful when you go online. Yeah. So it sounds, it sounds like that in addition to uh, the birds and the bees talk that you would recommend parents also have a social media talk with their children. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I used to wonder, you know, what, what the appropriate age was for a child to have a phone. You know, I, 13, 14, 15, I, I, I didn't know. And it wasn't until we saw the need approach us where the boys are in middle school and then they're starting to be uh, trucked around by the buses to tournaments and, and school activities. And this is when we still had to pick them up. So we wanted to know where they were and be able to call us if there was an emergency. And, and uh, when they were coming home, hey, mom, we'll be home in 20 minutes, so be at the school to pick me up. And then once we gave them a car, well, we used products like Life360, and 
it allowed us to, to set up geofencing so we know when they got to school, when they left, and went to tennis practice, and when they were coming home. It even tells them uh-huh. they're speeding. So it's, <laughs> it's a little weird. I know some parents are like, wow, you're, you're really kibitzing in your child's life. But my sons know that I leave them alone unless I have a reason to teach them something. I, you know, we don't go around here harping all the time, but if there's something I can teach them, then I'll take that opportunity and, and, and do it. And so, you know, th- those sorts of things do help. But I think when you're giving a child, you know, one of these devices or, techno- or these uh, software platforms, you should understand it yourself. You should adopt it yourself to some extent. So many parents don't even understand how Facebook works, um, and not that kids are using it as much anymore, but they don't know how this stuff works, and they should know it. What, so what, what, do, what do lawyers appreciate about privacy laws? What don't lawyers appreciate about privacy laws that uh, you wish they did, you know, particularly in America? Contract negotiations? No. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, what I'm finding now is, so I, I belong to a, an organization called the IPP, International Association of Privacy Professionals. It's an organization by somebody, uh, started by somebody that you and I, Tim, know, you know, Trevor Hughes. And Trevor had started the Email Center Provider Coalition and, and, and a couple of other groups back in the day. Um, and Trevor's, you know, uh, love, if you will, was to sort of bring privacy to the forefront, right, the education behind it to understand, you know, how important it was to not lose control over this. Um, and his organization has grown. I, I, I'm probably misquoting this. I want to say it's like around 50 or 55,000 people are now a part of it. When it first sort of started, it was people like you and I who had legal, you know, sort of, you know, backgrounds and, and you know, understood or could understand privacy um, and it would teach us to also have an appreciation for privacy and the regulations that were out there. There were a lot of attorneys that would come in who literally just sort of went to law school and, and, and went there for contractual law, you know, uh, a lot of what you first started doing, you know, when, when you and I first, you know, met. And uh, you and I had to begin to sort of learn, uh, you know, data stewardship and sort of the regulations that were around it. Um, so, you know, I think lawyers, you know, if I had to sort of give an opinion on this, is is to, you know, realize that there's more than just contractual law, um, you know, when it comes to doing business. Um, you know, the three or four counsels that, that work for us, you know, within, some, within Return Path, um, you know, they were hired out of law school. They were really good, you know, contract law. Um, you know, they were really working very hard on sales contracts, and, and then that was about it. And then as, as things got more heated over the last several years when it comes to privacy law and the, and the need to have privacy laws within the contracts, they began to pick up that information and that knowledge and now understand that when they're looking at laws, of course, they're looking at you know, limitations of liability and, and all that sort of stuff. But now they're also looking at, you know, applicable laws that are not just about breach notifications or other things, but they're looking at, you know, the, hey, the data is going to be moved from here to here or, you know, GDPR requires model clauses, you know, uh, you know data protection agreements. And that's become now a regular part of their day. So... You know, I tell a lot of, you know, lawyers that, that you know, that I know that it, it would be really good for them to sort of join an organization like IPP, get the knowledge around the, 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 the privacy landscape changing, even be certified. I've got certifications for U.S., for the EU, um, um, you know, several of the countries. I'm a privacy fellow for the IPP now, um, or I've been given that from the IPP. But, you know, by getting these certifications, you're also able to show that you have the necessary knowledge to be able to work 
in such a, um, you know, space, global space, if you will, right? Because, again, like I said earlier, the Internet doesn't understand bounds, and neither should law, and law shouldn't just be about, you know, sort of the basic contractual pieces to it. So um, I think it's, it's something good for them to all learn. Okay. And uh, what are you working on right now? Oh, gosh, I'm working on a lot of different things. Um, probably one of the more important things that's been on my radar lately is the uh, Department of Homeland Security's uh, Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. It was something that I was appointed to this past year, and I am working alongside some very great folks uh, where we're working with Sam Kaplan, who is the uh, Department of Homeland Security Chief Privacy Officer. Um, the DPAC uh, basically... Um, we provide advice at the request of the Secretary of Homeland Security and the Chief Privacy Officer on things like programming policy, operational issues, administrative issues, technological issues that that are within DHS that relate to you know PII, as well as sort of like data integrity and other you know, you know related matters. Um, this uh, you know group's been around for a while, and we're actually having another meeting actually uh, on Monday actually in D.C. There's a, a private hearing, and then there's a public hearing in the afternoon. Um, there's actually a, a meeting agenda, but you know we're going to be looking at a couple of different things for this upcoming year for 2019, like travel verification services, or you know we're looking at the draft report on the privacy recommendations uh, on use of facial recognition technologies. So some pretty neat stuff. Um, it's uh, I'm, I'm pretty pretty honored to be a part of this group and, and, and to working with them and to helping the government sort of move forward uh, with you know with the things that they need to get done and to make sure that at the same time we're putting in you know proper privacy protections as well. So uh, that's been the most recent thing. Well, terrific. Um, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to uh, appear on the podcast. Uh, I know I appreciate it. Uh, the uh, New York City Bar Association appreciates it, and I hope our audience appreciates it, too. Thank you so much, Dennis. Well, thank you, Tim. I appreciate that, and uh, hopefully it was very in- informational to everybody, and hopefully maybe sometime I'll be able to come out and, and meet some of the members. You can follow Dennis on Twitter at... D. Damon. D-D-A-Y-M-A-N. Terrific. Okay. Hey, thanks, Dennis. You have been listening to a podcast sponsored by the New York City Bar Association. My name is Tim Peterson, and we'll see you next time.